What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, everyone? Today on the show, we're taking a deep dive into SaaS pricing models with Dan Belkowski, founder at Product Tranquility. He got a start in product management at National Instruments in Austin, Texas, and went on to become product strategy principal at SolarWinds, a SaaS for DevOps and IT pros. And he later pivoted to B2C, heading up product at Lawnstart or Care. He's also freelanced as a product manager, even becoming a top 3% worldwide PM pro at TopTal. He's a program leader at Northwestern University teaching product strategy. And in 2019, he went out on his own and started Product Tranquility, where he helps B2B SaaS CEOs define pricing and packaging for new products. But what makes Dan truly special is his adventurous spirit. Prior to funding Product Tranquility, Dan embarked on an extraordinary personal journey as an independent travel consultant. He envisioned, planned, and executed a round-the-world expedition across 21 countries. This quest was a testament to his passion for continuous learning as he acquired new skills ranging from digital marketing to Spanish proficiency, kiteboarding, and even Argentine tango. Dan, we're pumped to chat with you today. Thanks for your time. (laughs) I'm super excited. And thank you for that intro. That was amazing. Yeah. I think the whole pricing conversation was just a ruse to get you on the show week so we could talk about <laughs> your solo trip. <laughs> um, Happy to. Yeah. Uh, we'll get there for sure uh, near the end of the podcast. I want to learn a little bit more about that journey and that adventurous and curious uh, spirit. Um, but, you know, in our lead up to the conversation, when we got introduced to, to each other, uh, you know, one of the things that became apparent right away was in terms of the pricing conversations as a digital marketer. My exposure to pricing conversations have been somewhat, I would say, limited. You know, you see folks exiting boardrooms, sweaty and passionate and uh, emerging with a finished package for a digital marketer like myself and say, oh, go forth and A-B test and uh, tell us what's working. And for me, it's always like, oh, there's an interesting process here, but it's not something that I'm super familiar with. Maybe you can help us kind of have like a warp speed in terms of understanding a little bit around what's happening in those boardrooms and nuances uh, of those conversations. Yeah. So if there's a lot of sweating and uh, screaming coming out of the boardroom, that sounds like a pricing fight to me, uh, for sure. <laughs> I think, you know, there's, I, I haven't been in all those boardrooms, so I can't say for absolute certain, but, you know, one of the things that I find is that, you know, most companies don't really have a great structured approach to pricing in the SaaS world. Uh, it tends to be a lot of sweaty uh, <laughs> and angry opinions uh, being thrown back and forth. And so, look, I mean, I, I enjoy a good fight as much as any, but I try to bring a little bit of uh, logic and sanity to this world. And so I have an overall model for SaaS pricing that I use, and I call it the services model, it stands for the different uh, four components of the model, S, V, C, and S. So it's, you know, I've Basically, overall, I found companies usually face you know, four significant challenges when they tackle pricing. You know, usually, they have an unclear target customer profile. They don't understand what customers are serving. They have a poor understanding of how they create customer value. They're unclear about their product's unique differentiation. And they have a general underappreciation for the depth of decisions that go into a pricing and packaging approach. It's not just, is this $20 a user? Is it $100 a user? Is it $19.95? Should our prices end in fives and nines? So we tend to think about pricing a decision mainly around that price level and neglect many other factors. So 
that's why I created my services model. So the services stands for the four components that I mentioned before. So I promise it was a happy accident. I didn't plan it that way. Uh, the four components are segments, value, competition, and strategy. So you need to consider your customer segments first. So segments is the S in there. The context your customer's in is critical. They'll dictate the constraints they're facing, which value drivers they view as most important. You know, as you get to the second part of the model, each segment will rank order value drivers differently, which will cause them to value your product differently. And the third part of the model, we consider competition. Different segments have different competitive alternatives available to them. You know, what would they use if your company did not exist? But we can think of these first three elements as inputs to our overall pricing process because your pricing power really comes from the differentiated value that you create for a particular segment beyond the competitive alternatives available. So those three elements filter down to what I call strategy, which is the last S and strategy I use in the Michael Porter sense of the word. So strategy is about trade-offs. Many companies would like to be everything to everyone. We have to make decisions. We have to decide where we're going to play, what customers segments are we going to serve given the available segments in the market you know, where are we best suited to play and win who are we going to target how do we position ourselves in the minds of those customers to clarify our differentiated value and how do we make all the necessary trade-offs among the different elements of SaaS packaging that you know we might talk about this at length later but you know those would be like price metrics price model offer configurations etc uh, these inputs will also help inform our choice of a price level the number we set to help us achieve our business objectives Thanks, Dan. I appreciate the breakdown of the the model that you've you've kind of created there. I think there's uh, a lot to unpack there. I, like in in my research uh, ahead of uh, your your interview, I I dived super deep into usage based pricing, but also value based pricing, and those are kind of like new new terms to me for sure. But um, I wanted to get your take on on value based pricing and how that kind of applies to to your framework a little bit. Like the the common definition that that I found based on the research is that uh, value based pricing is based on perceived value that a customer will get. From from your product and it still kind of relies on this price uh, metric to charge customers like number of users or amount of storage what if like uh, i'm curious your thoughts here and i'm thinking a bit ahead in the future but like what if the focus of value-based pricing was actually about value metrics like increased productivity or increased sales what if SaaS companies charged based on the actual value delivered? Like, for example, a CRM charging based on deals closed every month instead of number of users. Do you think that would ever be possible or am I smoking right now? No, I, so you, I, that's that's absolutely possible. And I think one thing we want to take, we take a step back so we don't uh, lose the audience a little bit. So because you threw out a lot of terminology and just so I want to quickly clarify kind of where we're at. So with the idea of value-based pricing at a fundamental philosophical level, really what we're trying to think of is that price is merely the dividing line between the buyer and seller of how they divide value in the transaction. Right. Each side is going to be better off. This goes all the way back to Adam Smith with trade, right? You've got the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. They don't all try to you know, bake their own bread and cut their own meat, et cetera, because it's better if we all specialize. We're all better off if we specialize in trade, right? And so price is really how we negotiate that in a market economy. So you threw out a couple of terms. So I wanted to make a distinction between a value metric and a price metric. So value metric is really, uh, I use a lot of jobs to be done. And we think about jobs to be done as really uh, being specific about a customer and their context and the outcome that they're trying to achieve. And that outcome is how they will judge the effectiveness of your product. So you know, generally in terms of economic or functional outcomes, we think of saving time, decreasing costs, increasing revenue, uh, increasing optionality, decreasing risk. Uh, you might have uh, emotional outcomes like it reduces anxiety, it increases my status. You might have social outcomes, right? We tend to do things not only for ourselves, but for we have pro-social goals, right? Uh, fighting for climate or equal rights or access to education or healthcare, right? So, so those are different 
areas where we can get value. And so we think about value metrics. Those are really the, the customers trying to get a job done. And they're going to apply your solution as a tool to get that job done better. And that is the value metric, how they measure that job getting done mm -hmm. better is the value metric. The other thing that you mentioned is a price metric. And a price metric is uh, related, but it's really focused on the product. So value metric focused on the customer, price metric focused on the product. So the idea is that we could charge uh, by different things. You know, it's, it's, Price metric is uh, the unit of value we charge a customer for uh, as it pertains to the product. So oftentimes that could be users or seats or API transactions or gigabytes of data transferred or stored or API transactions, whatever it might be. And these two concepts, the value metric and price metric, we want them to be correlated with each other. Mm -hmm. So ideally, right, we, you know, if, if, you know, we charge by seats, but it, it doesn't really matter how many people actually log into the product or have access to the product. Like that does not how, d dictate how customers get value, right? That would probably be a, a poor access of price metrics. And there's, there's a bunch of different criteria we might apply to determine which price metric are better. Now, getting to your fundamental question of, you know, could a CRM, for example, uh, charge customers based upon like the number of deals closed? Uh, this is, uh, we would call this outcome-based uh, pricing. So I think mm -hmm. this is a very nice uh, philosophical purity of the value-based model is we're completely aligned as the vendor with our customer success. It tends not to work very well in practice. Um, so it, there, that's not to say it's never used uh, because it is. Uh, I think one company that is incredibly successful with this is uh, Stripe, for example, because Stripe is in the payment flow, right? So as you are generating revenue, Stripe is there processing the transaction. And so the more you process through Stripe, the more money they make, right? So so there are happy situations where it does align very well of like, hey, we're we're, we're going to make you more successful and help you make it easier for you to process your payments uh, and all the uh, capabilities that they provide around that. And therefore, you know, if you do well, we do well, uh, and we share in that upside with you. It doesn't tend to work as nicely if you're outside of the I guess, flow of whatever sort of success metric you're using. Uh, it could require, if you think about like, okay, we're going, you know, if you were say, uh, if you were a CRM, right, your salespeople are, are, are processing orders, et cetera. But maybe, you know, there's, there's going to be a, not a clean signal between, okay, yeah, the deal closed, but like, when is it billed? When is it processed? All that's helping happening in another system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe the data in the CRM isn't exactly what the final order is, right? And so you could see now it requires some reporting above and beyond that has to go back to the vendor. And let's just say the incentives aren't perfectly aligned. Uh, so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we have this, this tension, uh, not that people lie, but you it's like, well, oh, I thought you meant just the revenue that was related to this set of products, mm -hmm. not all the products, or for this business unit, or or only I thought it was only year one. Um, and you can you can see how it may accelerate a unhealthy relationship if you're constantly having to double check each other's work in a way that isn't obviously transparent. 
Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for uh, breaking that down. I feel like, yeah, the Stripe example is, is really resonating. Yeah, it's definitely fascinating uh, to, to go this direction. And I'm thinking like one of the things we talked about in our previous conversation, you said, and I think you've repeated in other podcasts, is the right price for the right customer. And I know in SaaS land, it's fun to build these financial growth models like, oh, we'll be exit at this point based on our pricing model if we had this many users based on this pricing. But as we've discussed, there's a ton more that goes in behind the scenes to, to getting to this point. The question I have is really about the types of insights and data points that like we as digital marketers, because I, I, I know for myself, I've definitely been part of these conversations from, hey, tell me what these segments are doing in you know Marketo or in these places and, and bringing data insights into the table. And then what comes out of it, like in terms of the messaging around pricing and value? We've already got a sense from some of what you've said, like the positioning and the pricing are almost in some senses indistinguishable from each other to kind of assess the strategy. So yeah, a broad overreaching question, but uh, I like those on the show and I think you're up for it, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> tee it up, tee it up. I'm yeah. good. So I think there's a few different kind of foundational kind of concepts and then I'll sort of dive into the media question. So you know, when we talk about value-based pricing, you know, value is this very nebulous concept. And I think, you know, much like segmentation and markets tends to get in product market fit and <laughs> uh, minimum viable product. There's a lot of people who are, you know, have this illusion of communication when we say these terms and nobody actually is on the same page of what the actual <laughs> definition is. So I like to make sure when we're talking about value that I set some groundwork. So I, I build on a lot of jobs to be done. I also build on this framework called the Value Cascade that came from this gentleman, Tom Nagel. He wrote probably the seminal book on pricing, the strategy and tactics of pricing, uh, was one of the initial pricing consultants. And it's the absolute Bible for anyone who gets in the pricing world. And basically the Value Cascade, he breaks down some different components of value. And just at a very quick high level, the first being like use value. Use value is this idea that, you know, a the value you get from a product is the sum of all possible benefits uh, you get, whether it be functional benefits or emotional, social, uh, et cetera, uh, right? But for a pricing exercise, that really doesn't help us because we live in a market economy. So you know, as soon as there is a, another offer on the table from another uh, vendor, another company, then that sets a reference price. And so the all the undifferentiated value now have, has a price that we don't have any market power to. So said another way is that competition competes away our ability to set price for undifferentiated value. Therefore, in the next step of the value cascade, we have this idea of exchange value. Um, and exchange value is really, what is the reference price plus or minus our differentiation, right? And that really uh, requires us to understand, you know, how do we help customers do the job better? The, tying back to that idea of the value metrics we talked about earlier. And then we have the next step in the value cascade is perceived value. So each of these stages, right, we're adding in another layer of concept. And so the exchange value really is, is a nice sort of fundamental way that we can think about, okay, if we help you increase your revenue, you know, X percent over the next best competitive alternative, right, we're creating this amount of value. But that works on a spreadsheet. Thing is, is that your buyers you know, only care about the inherent objective value of your service to the extent that they do, right? And you as a marketer have a large responsibility to change their perceived value. And so you know, we know this from experience, our buyers are busy, uh, buying our product is not their number one job. A lot of times, especially in a B2B context, they got tasked with it by their manager. You know, they're going around asking a couple of friends, you know, in other companies, hey, what did you guys use? Maybe they're looking at G2 or Trust Radius or a couple of review sites. 
they don't know the market, right? They're looking at Gartner's uh, Magic Quadrant or whatever. They're getting a couple of, of high-level candidates, but they don't know, you know, feature number 52 and 53 and how that compares to feature competitor, you know, feature 26 and 27. Like they have no idea, right? And so you have a lot of responsibility as a marketer to help, you know, help them. So, you know, we think about what's the goal of a marketer in this situation. We got kind of four goals, like help the customer understand the benefits of your product, you know, help improve their customer willing to pay, you know, because only their perceived value drives willingness to pay. That's kind of like when we go from, that's one of the benefits, I uh, reasons I really love the value cascade is because it it really helps us tie together this, this world of value and price in a very concrete stepped way. And so really like the perceived value that customers have is going to set an upper limit on their, on their willingness to pay for the product. Uh, not what sort of ever, you know, calculation sort of you understand from your uh, in-depth knowledge. Um, you're increasing the customer's likelihood to buy and then, you know, inform and, and frame the customer. So, Ultimately, you know, you asked about data points and insights. You know, there's really no substitute for talking to your customers. Uh, really, at a deep level, um, understanding the context that they're in, you know, how they're making decisions, um, and ultimately moving the conversations to dollars. Otherwise, you know, it's just noise. And I think this is an area where. You know, potentially like product managers, maybe in, like they, or user researchers tend to do a lot of you know, user-based research. But you know, we're in the pricing world. We really ha do have to make this distinction between the uh, the buyer and the user, right? And we it gets even more complicated. Oftentimes, we'll think about the buying center, and there's multiple mm -hmm. uh, influencers, etc. Uh, and we really have to understand you know all of those sort of components to to understand you know how are those people thinking about the financial impacts, the value drivers, uh, etc. Um, so you know. We'll have a you know do a bunch of those sort of qual uh, qualitative you know conversations, and we think through you know how does your you know, I, I make this other point. You know, this could be a whole podcast in of itself. So I'll just make <laughs> one more point. I think I think the number one thing I see companies do right, and and I, you know I, I know marketers are in a valiant fight, but you know especially if you come from a, a you have a technical team, uh, technical product team, uh, they want to talk about our features. Uh, nobody cares about your features. Uh, nobody cares ultimately about your product. Uh, they care about the benefits <laughs> and the value they get from your product. Um, and so you know we'll I like this idea of a feature benefit value uh, table uh, mapping. You know, ultimately, right? Like we want to go from, you know, if, if we already have a product built, if your marketers are, are sitting in the building, like, well, you know, it's great to sort of, you know, if, if there was a tabla rasa where I just had, you know, sort of blank slate, I could imagine what customers might value and sort of build from there. I've got an existing product today. Like, well, you start with the features. Okay. And then it's this progressive asking of, so what? Like, all right, this feature, the customer has this feature. Why do they care? So what? Uh, because it gives them this benefit. Oh, it makes our product easier to use. Okay, so what? Well, if they it's easier to use, there's less chance of them making a mistake. Every time, you know, it's a it's a order entry system. And each time there's a, a poor entry, it costs the company, you know, ten thousand dollars a rework, right? And we change the error rate from you know 90% to 97%, whatever it might be, right? And now you have a quantified uh way you can create uh describe the value you provide. And look. Finishing up this point with any of these sort of economic benefits, at the end of the day, there's very few, you know, you're either increasing revenue or decreasing costs uh, a lot of the time. Uh, but, you know, if you say it at that level as a marketer, like nobody's going to care, it's going to just wash over your head. So we do need to really talk in the in the end customer's language, right? And that's one of the things we're really trying to pull out of these in-depth qualitative conversations is really understand, okay, they're they're in some system today 
this is their workflow. This is what they're doing. And like, this is how we make that better as we describe it. Uh, so does that help? Yeah, yeah, totally. I love how like specific uh, a lot of the pricing discussions are uh, to messaging. Like obviously marketers are, especially product marketers, like playing in, in, in both areas, right? Like you mentioned, don't talk about your features. Don't even talk about the product, like focus on uh, the superpowers that like the product ends up giving the user or uh, the person that's involved in, in the process, right? Like you think of the the famous like Super Mario plus like the, the, the mushroom that he gets, like that's actually what you're selling, right? I want to like dive down to one of the, the, the terms that you use there, um, the willingness to pay, uh, for, from what I've read, like it's the maximum amount a customer is ready and willing to pay for your product. Um, well, I've also read that like many argue that it's not straightforward or even reliable as it sounds for, for a few reasons. So like I'll, I'll list those out and I'm curious, like what your take is on whether you like think that willingness to pay is, uh, like a metric that, that people should really care about a lot. So, uh, number one, it's based on self-reported data, like surveys, and it can be unreliable like stated preferences can be a lot different when it actually comes time to making a purchase number two uh willing to pay assumes that the consumer is making a rational decision and we know as humans that's rarely the case for us uh this is especially true for me like i've been a part of a lot of like martech and, and SaaS decision making buying committees as you've mentioned and oftentimes like there's pre-existing preference and bias towards certain tools and like where does that kind of fall into to the model Number three is willingness to pay is often seen as a static number, but really a customer's willingness to pay can fluctuate based on a bunch of different factors that's impacting the business or like impacting their current budget. And the last one was uh, willingness to pay tends to focus on individual purchases rather than considering LTV, uh, the lifetime value of a purchase or a customer and the potential for uh, upsells also. So uh, what what is your take and, and do you disagree with some of these? Uh, so I think that's a great list. And uh, at the risk of blowing through the rest of our time in the interview, I want to, I want to be short uh, with the, with the answers. So you brought up a lot of, of good points. So ultimately, right. We need to think of willingness to pay. You know, it, it doesn't have a true universal meaning. You know, sometimes it's, you know, we can think of it as a floor, the price at which, you know, consumer will demand one unit of product. Sometimes it's a, and it called an indifference price. The the price at which a buyer is indifferent between buying and not buying. Sometimes we can think of it as a ceiling, you know, the minimum price at which a buyer will no longer purchase. You know, I, I guess I would say this, like willingness to pay is not an answer to a math problem. It's an expression of a desire or a guess about what other human beings will do. Like it's a, it's a, it's a psychological construct, like, like happiness, but we can't estimate it and observe its effects in the outside mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. So I would say overall, like, you know, you should consider customer willingness to pay as a range, you know, even for everyday purchases and, if we had more time, I'd go through a little bit more uh, of an example. But you know, in general, I think there's a, there a few few different things. So one is willingness to pay is an outcome. It's not a universal constant like the speed of light or Planck's constant, right? That we could just go out like what is the what is the price of this water bottle does not have an answer that on judgment day God's going to say, no, you were wrong, Dan. This price is actually this. It's it's a it is a measurement of desire. And so therefore if I ask you what you will pay versus Jonathan right now, you'll probably give me different answers. And a lot of that will be contextual. Do you already have one? Are you thirsty? Like, do you, like, are we here? And if you buy it from me, like there'll be, I don't know, you'll get Dan's water bottle and that'll have some extra value to you. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that has negative value. I, I'm not, I'm not going to judge either way. But 
you know, I think this idea of you know, customers, uh, you know, stated preference versus revealed preference, I think is, is, this is exhausting because I do get this a lot. And look, we, we understand that, um, look, revealed preference data has a whole bunch of uh, downsides. And again, I, I, unfortunately, I know you guys want to touch on some other topics, so I can't go through all those downsides right now, but, um, look, ultimately, uh, we're in this situation where, Market researchers have understood the those problems you've outlined for the last 60 years, and they've developed techniques and systems and ways to uh, ask quiet questions in non-biasing ways, create multiple measurement instruments, right? It's like you wouldn't take, you know, any, uh, there's very few things in life where you'd say, okay, we're measuring Happiness. I, I think happiness is a good uh, counterexample in the in the psychological world because it is because you know Willie's pay could be considered a psychological construct. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, like, are, am I am I measuring sort of happiness point in time versus you know happiness as I look back over my life? You know, and we might think of different types of questions we could ask to get at that truth, right? And, and different ways we could probe people, whether you have them do sort of point in time journaling or, or ask, you know, for their uh, their preferences in in arrears. Um, and so the same thing exists in the pricing world. We have these abilities to to ask questions in different ways. Um, and yes, there are certain methods, but we've you know all those methods over time, uh, you know, through academic research and and research from consultants like myself and, and others have understood, okay, when you ask questions in this way, you're probably, the, the results are going to be biased versus actuals uh, in this direction versus this type of, these type of questions are going to be biased in this other direction. So ultimately, like, and then I think the, the final point you mentioned is just the, we know people aren't rational. Uh, they, they tend to make irrational decisions. Look, I'm a huge a lover of behavioral economics. I've got Richard Thaler's book over there uh, on my shelf. Um, I'm a big, big fan of uh, Dan Ariely and I read all those books. I love them. Um, I think, you know, to a certain extent, customers aren't as rational as, you know, the economists or the, 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 uh, the traditional economists would have us believe, but they're also not as irrational as the behavioral economists would have us believe. Hmm. So we need to understand both. And I, I, I think behavioral economics is useful for, optimizing around the edges right um and that's where it, it can be helpful right where it's like okay if you're if you have uh, this is where the idea of good better best comes from because you know c- people tend to pick you know the option in the middle if there's uncertainty about a decision right and so you'll tend to see even if even if you theoretically divided the value among different customer segments perfectly between the tiers you'll probably see the most purchase in the middle just mm-hmm. because of their behavioral economics principles right and so we could we could tune our intuitions based upon that but that doesn't mean we throw out this idea of really understanding how we create value for customers because people are just going to make anything, uh, do anything anyway. Uh, And especially in a B2B context, one more thing I'll say about that is that there is an emotional decision even in a B2B context. One thing that we have to think through though, is that even though people may make uh, some of their decisions emotionally, they usually do need a logical justification, especially if there's a committee. It'd be like, how, like, why are we making this decision? We're about to outlay a large amount of money. Um, so even if you know at the individual level, maybe they're they're bi- they're biasing it from an emotional level on the, you know their logic that they do ultimately usually want an ROI case uh, for for the purchase. I love it. Thanks. Uh, thanks for breaking that down. I feel like my favorite takeaway from that is. Uh, for readers who finish reading Predictably uh, Irrational by Dan Ariely, they should also read a couple essays by uh, Adam Smith. 
Yeah, fascinating. I'm I'm going to change gears a little bit because there's a few topics. Uh, selfishly, as a digital marketer, uh, I want to I want to cover as we as we go through this interview. Um, in my last tenure in the SaaS world, usage based model was coming up more and more as like a popular way of uh, structuring pricing models. And I think most of us have encountered it in some shape or form in our professional or personal lives at this point. Um, do you want to mind giving us a little bit of primer on, on the usage-based model? Why is it an attractive model? Maybe linking a, bit, a little bit back to like the value exchanges that we're talking about. Like, is it easier for us to think about it versus, you know, hey, I'm consuming an app or using it in, in this much. Um, is it is it closer to that value-based model we talked about with Stripe, for instance, where they're right at that point of purchase? Yeah, so I really get frustrated with the way usage-based pricing is discussed in, in industry because it's, I think people are conflating a couple of different packaging concepts that make it really hard to understand what people are, are really doing and what what's really happening. So I think there's two, we didn't break down uh, the the elements of packaging in entirety, but you know, two of them that are relevant to this discussion is price metric, which I touched on before. Are you charging by seats or you know API transactions or gigabytes of data stored or transferred? And then the, the idea of a pricing model. And the pricing model is you know how and when payments flow through the system. So pricing model I see as a subscription could be a utility based billing model like uh, your electricity bill where you use as much electricity as you need to and then the electricity uh, company bills you in arrears for how much you used or it could be a hybrid approach there's also you know auction uh, based models like Google and Facebook use for uh, for their pricing uh, etc so you know when we think about usage based pricing people tend to conflate uh, those two aspects you know when we think about a pricing metric you could have kind of two general classes of pricing metric you can have a capability metric or a, a consumption metric so capability uh, usually would be just an uncountable you know it's like i go to you know in the old days i go to office max or best buy and i buy a copy of uh, microsoft word like i buy a box of microsoft word right that's the sort of the, the <laughs> uncountable i guess it's one uh, price metric right but that just gives me access to everything in that box right and it doesn't scale with how much however much I, I use it right i just get one copy of microsoft word and can it can use it right and so you'll see that with a lot of more maybe simpler tools uh, right um or potentially also like add-ons and then we have this idea of a consumption metric, you know, and that could be uh, users, but usually often think thought of as like, you know, data transferred or stored or uh, API transactions or you know, number of uh, contacts in a marketing database tool, uh, those, those kind of things. When I think the, a lot of the conversation these days, people are looking at companies like Snowflake, for example. Um, you know, Snowflake is using a consumption-based metric for you know the the data that you store in their uh, their uh, data warehouses, but then also you've got uh, this idea of a you know, utility-based uh, billing model uh, as well. Um, and so I think that you know as we think about that versus subscription uh, or kind of some of these hybrids uh, approaches, you know that people have a mix, right? And you, I, I love how you know in the software world, you know everything old is new again, right? It's like oh usage-based pricing. It's like my electric company's been billing this way for a hundred years. I don't know like why the software companies are super excited about it. I guess you know I, I get it, but like you know I I, I don't get it. Um, you know and then uh, similarly, right? My cell phone plan from the '90s, right? I had a certain amount of anytime minutes plus I had over you know uh, overtime minutes, right? Um, so that would be like a hybrid approach where I've got sort of allotted 500 minutes. If I go over in a given month, right, I've charged some ungodly uh, per per usage fee. They used to do that with the SMS messages. I remember some bills early days on, on I texted too much in, in a month and I was like, oh my God, I paid for my entire cell phone bill for a year with, <laughs> with the amount of text I sent through. 
Yeah, so so we see those in those hybrid approaches. I think if we're looking at just that sort of pricing model shift, because I think that's what gets a lot of this attention, is you know, this idea of we can think of this as a risk sharing arrangement. So you know, as I'm purchasing a piece of software, you know, I might have a unclear uh, adoption ramp, for example. So it's like, yeah, we've got a thousand employees and we've got this much data in our environment. This is how much we plan on using it, but I don't know if we're going to start. You know, we're going to have one department use it for the first month and then it's going to slowly roll out. And we might not hit that, you know, however much we're buying from a subscription point until month 12. And so why am I going to, you know, and maybe something happens in between where you find out that the software isn't as good as you expected or, you know, people get busy and distractions happen like, you know, I don't know, COVID or uh, Silicon Valley bank collapsing, whatever you, whatever thing might be more important than your software at the moment, uh, right? That might stop an implementation. And so it allows the uh, vendor to take on some of that adoption risk, right? Um, again, will it really work in this environment? Like, you know, we want to, we, we want to purchase now and sort of roll it out slowly, but we don't want to have to, you know, go through a new purchase process, right? Or we might have, you know, get different results over time. So I think those are some of the reasons why uh, that uh, particular model is is uh, beneficial for people buying software. I love the comparison and the metaphor to electricity companies and <laughs> they've been doing this for a hundred <laughs> years. That's actually like one of the things that that comes to mind. Like when you think of user-based pricing for uh, a lot of these folks, like this idea of like the the meter running, right? I, I'm, I'm curious, like you, your take on this, like one of the, the drawbacks that's been highlighted about user-based pricing is um, like this idea that it might create a disincentive for users to fully exploit and engage with the product when they're always conscious about this idea of the meter running. Like maybe I'm not going to go all out and, and do this thing yet in my product because my price is, is going to go up. I'm curious your thoughts there, Dan. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And I think um, there's a there's a bunch of different factors that will go in. And when I work with clients, like we kind of go through a, a checklist and kind of look at, at different uh, ways that they can map uh, pros or cons. I think one thing you just pointed out is what's called the, the taxi meter effect. So it comes from uh, a woman who was, I believe at MIT, wrote an article back in, in 2015 called Why Do People Hate Paying by the Minute or the Mile So Much? Uh, and she uh, created this idea of the taxi meter. If you imagine, you know, I get in the back of a taxi cab, tell the driver where I'm going, he flips on the meter, and then he starts driving. Well, he might take a wrong turn. He might get stuck in a series of red lights. Meanwhile, I'm watching that meter go up and up. And so not only is he, is he driving me, but he's also driving my anxiety because now I'm wondering <laughs> how big the bill is going to be at the end of this, where contrast that with an Uber or a Lyft where you, you know, you put the destination on your phone and it tells you the price before you say, Hey, you want a book? It's surge pricing or it's not surge pricing, whatever it might be. And you, you know, you get in and then, yeah, maybe you tip or maybe you don't at the end, but other, other than that, you not have this, this constant, you know, in your face, like, oh, the, the, the meter is running. So I think we do have to be careful of that. There's no sort of one size fits all. I think uh, something like a snowflake, I think they sort of get around it because they're so low in the stack that I don't know that like the architects building on those data platforms are really you know, they're, they're trying to solve major business issues and like the, how much data is being used that this ultimately end up in their, in their snowflake bill is, is not sort of directly tangible in that moment. That's different though, than 
I don't know, I'm using MailChimp and I add another contact directly to my database mm -hmm. and it's like, oh, okay, you just incremented your bill for next month. And I'm like, oh, maybe I'll remove somebody else I don't want in there <laughs> right. you know, to do it. And so you end up playing, you know, it, it, that's not really healthy for either party, right? Like everyone's now spending wasted effort to try to, you know, tweak around the edges when really, you know, we want to be focused on helping people get their job done. You know, ultimately I think you know, these kind of models can be really good when you know, usage is consistent and generally the user feels in control. It's predictable increase over time and customers want to start small and scale over time when customers generally prefer flexibility over predictability and transparency. That is one of the problems with these models is uh, th there are different things you can play with in contracting world to make it more palatable uh, for customers. But you know, some of these tools, right, they might be infrastructure products, or I see this in the uh, security space where, uh, like, say you've got a system that monitors data coming off machines. Well, those machines can get real noisy and start spewing off a lot more data when you actually have an attack incident. Uh, well, you know, that was not under control of the user, and it was, hmm. you know, out of line for what the expectation was when, when the budgets were happening. And so now you've got you know, very unhappy customer who's getting a bill at the end of the month, you know, I mean, hopefully the thing did its job and it was worth it, but uh, right. that's where these things can, can become uh, yeah, counterproductive. Yeah. You talk about flexibility there a little bit. Like, what do you think about usage based pricing versus unbundling pricing or this idea of like composable packaging? Like we talked a bit about, like, do you think the future of SaaS lies in unbundling, offering like more specific narrow solutions at a lower cost instead of charging for usage of a specific feature. So like walking it back a bit, like usage based equals frequency of using a specific feature. Unbundling could equal charged based on the selection of features, whether they're used or not by the end user. This is kind of where like you talked about Snowflake and, and data platforms there. Like this is where the CDP industry is, is kind of like morphing a little bit. Like I'm sure you've seen those battles of like composable versus packaged CDPs and how many MarTech vendors are thinking about this. Like we have this divide in the market about customers need to select different parts of a CDP versus this legacy offering that has all of those features. Like curious, like the the tangents there with with pricing and, and what you're seeing in industry. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of different things going on there. And the I think first of all, I don't I don't see a necessarily a tension between usage-based pricing and bundling or what I refer to as offer configurations, because I think these are elements, separate elements of packaging that can move orthogonally to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes people will tie them together. You'll see this what we call volume-based tiering, uh, where it's like, hey, this is for SMB at up to 10 users, and it doesn't matter how many users yeah, actually, yeah. but this is, gets you 10, right? And this is like 10 to 100. Uh, I generally don't recommend that for a whole bunch of reasons. But, uh, you know, there's a guy, uh, Jim Clark, if you ever read Michael Lewis's The New New Thing, uh, he was a founder, CEO of uh, Silicon Graphics and Netscape, and then I think I remember another company, uh, but super famous uh, Silicon Valley CEO. He said, "There's only two ways to make money in business: is bundling and unbundling." Uh, so, you know, ultimately, I think you're you're correct, right? If we look at the PC as a industry, right, it started with sort of IBM as the monolithic 
uh, provider, and then they created the uh, PC compatible, right? And then we had the creation of the Wintel monopoly, right? So now we unbundled and now the operating system was separate from the, the CPU architecture. And then you had a bunch of other providers uh, at the uh, sort of base motherboard and, and you know, RAM layer, right? You didn't really care who those people were necessarily. And then you had the, you know, the HPs and the compacts and the Dells, et cetera, like building and, and creating the products. Uh, and then that worked really well until Steve Jobs came along and said, nope, nope, nope. Actually, we want to have this all <laughs> vertically integrated and, and we're going to have a better experience by giving you a bundled uh, vertically integrated uh, piece of software uh, and hardware together, right? And we see that dynamic playing out uh, with the last couple of weeks with uh, the, you know, we've got uh, Facebook and uh, with Oculus and, and Apple with the, the Vision Pro, right? Um, you know, Apple's doing the same thing they did. You know, we'll see we'll see where what happens with it. I, I It's not my particular uh, area of expertise, but, you know, you see that you know, Oculus was very successful with the sort of exhaust of the smartphone wars, uh, kind of cobbling together those parts. And Apple's like, no, uh, we're really good at creating processors. We're really good at creating an integrated experience. So I think you see this, you know, these dynamics play out over time, right? So it, there's a there's a certain, you know, consolidation and you want everything all in one. And then everyone says, oh, these people are getting, they're not innovating and the, the, you're they're leaving specific use cases behind. And then you see uh, providers come and, and pick those off. Uh, a lot of that, I think, has to be industry timing. I don't know that any one company can really dictate that because you, you, you do need sort of that calcification uh, layer or you need a sort of a platform shift which I think that's why, you know, Apple's uh, Apple and Facebook are, are trying to go after, you know, we'll see what kind of market that turns into, but, you know, uh, cause that's how those big companies really sort of make their money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You talked about like tiering and, and usage based pricing there and how they can kind of like play uh, within each other. And I feel like MarTech seems to be a little bit like, especially marketing automation platforms, like uh, my bread and butter a little bit, like seems to be moving away from this idea of like database uh, size. Like right now, that's how like the MailChimps and the Marketos and the iterables are charging customers right now. Like how big is your user database is going to dictate like the, 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 the invoice that you get at the end of the month. But I feel like a lot of these marketing automation platforms are moving to a model that doesn't require teams to duplicate their database uh, in, in another tool, basically, and sits on top of your, your data warehouse. This is the idea, like, we, we've been diving into this in a few episodes now of, like, warehouse native MarTech, where instead of charging users for how many people they have in their database, since they're already spending all that money in Snowflake or Redshift in their data warehouse, instead, they're going to charge you a flat fee with some flavor of composable pricing or like maybe tiering per users. Um, one example is castle.io. We're chatting with the founder on the podcast later. Um, but yeah, like curious what, what your take is on that. If you're, you're seeing that in, in industry a bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's different people will play in different areas and will try to use price metrics that either help or hinder, you know, their competitive differentiation. And so that's a very sort of nuanced decision depending upon the market that you're in. I don't, I don't know that specific market uh, incredibly well. I mean, ultimately like you'd like a pricing metric that you know aligns with customers business requirements and perceived value of the product you know allows the company to capture fair value predict predictably minimizes operational friction between the buyer and the seller where sort of both sides can exert reasonable control over the metric and there's going to be a bunch of trade-offs you know in there right so one of the things is like how how innovative do you want to try and get with a pricing metric so one of the 
examples that is loved by all the pricing consultants, uh, and I'll, I'll abuse it right now as well, is that you know Rolls-Royce did this with uh, jet engines, right? So Rolls-Royce doesn't only make cars, but they make uh, jet engines. And you know most uh, companies in that industry sold you know by the jet engine. Instead, Rolls-Royce decided to charge power by the hour was there. Uh, so the the you only it is usage based pricing again. Mm-hmm. I don't know, 30, 20, 30 years ago, however long this was, <laughs> you know, so not new. Um, but you know, it aligns the value, you know, because the then the airlines are only making money when their their flights are, you know, running, right? So the they got a plane sitting in the hangar, right? It's like, well, why am I you know, I've got an asset that's not income producing? Right? So it matches the cash flows of the of the buyer and the seller, which is really nice. It matches to the the value, and then also. You know, they can start taking on uh, a lot of the extended sort of jobs to be done, the ancillary jobs uh, that, you know, go outside of the, the asset, right? So they can have, okay, you're not just paying us for you know, the engine running, but you're also, that's that's covering your maintenance and, and replacement, right? You're just paying one sort of uh, fee, right? And it just makes a whole bunch of things uh, very streamlined. The thing is, is that you really only want to do that if you're that takes time though. That takes, that takes energy and uh, educating your market about that. Uh, change. So mm-hmm. if you're, you have better success if you're like the industry leader in doing that, um, or if your uh, product is much more innovative. So those are, those are two ways. Cause otherwise it can, it can get, you know, kind of expensive to be like, oh, cause everyone else is, cause everyone else is coming to you, right? They're coming to you to buy a CRM and they're like, oh, well, Salesforce charges by seats. So you must charge by seats. You're like, no, we charge you by the number of actions your reps take in the system each day. And they're like, why? Well, I've never heard that before. And now you got to have a whole conversation educating them about it, right? Like hopefully you wouldn't do something as uh, not smart as that, but you could imagine like uh, people try to get too cute, let's just say with their pricing metrics, right? It's like, it's like just to be different. So those are some of the things I'd want to think through. Um, as we wind down our interview, we've got kind of two two different questions uh, to go on. One of one of which is a thought, a fun thought experiment idea. And I wanted to, you know, the moment in time we're at, AI is is everywhere, and we're constantly thinking about it. And I wanted to come up with a question of asking you about AI and pricing and usage based pricing and value based pricing. Ultimately, I really sucked at coming up with a good question, but instead, in researching you and your your amazing solo tour, which I, you know, I'm very curious about. I decided that Phil and I were going to build an AI uh, app for solo travelers. So it's an AI app that uh, helps keep track of your reservations, your travel times as you're going through. It can make you dynamic dinner reservations based on where you're at, based on your preferences. It does all this for, for you. It's going to have a freemium model for everybody to use, but a premium model that'll help like dynamic booking, letting you know if your flights are delayed and stuff like that. So you know, thinking of this, like this AI model, kind of like a chat GPT type interface, maybe like a, like a voice command prompt, you know, just thinking about the moment in time, walk us through some of the initial reactions and discovery thoughts that you'd want working with Phil and I to, to, to bring this hypothetical product to market. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I can, <laughs> my first reaction is, um, I hope it's not for, uh, solo personal travelers, uh, because those people usually don't have any money to spend. So, <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, non, uh, not joking along, this does, uh, raise the, uh, first question, which is tying this back to the services model. Have you really thought of your different customer segments? So, mm-hmm. you know, what is the context that this solo traveler is in? Are they traveling for pleasure? Are they traveling for business? Are they traveling you know, long-term, short-term? 
because the context are they are they uh do they have experience, right? Like, uh, what other tools uh, are are they used to using, or what other tools are they are they uh, comfortable using? Because really understanding those customer segments and how their contexts differ uh, again will change the different value drivers. We see this all the time. You know, I don't know anything about your uh, imaginary product, but you know, if we just think about uh, airline tickets, right? Um, this is the whole rationale behind, uh, you know, the last minute ticket costs more than the planned ahead ticket, you know, and that's usually because uh, business travelers buy last minute, but if you're taking a personal vacation, you usually uh, pay in advance. And so it's a easy price segmentation scheme. And that's not done by accident. The airlines are very smart. And so uh, that's one of the ways that they they uh, price differentiate. So these are the, these are the kinds of early questions we want, really want to think of. Are are there specific characteristics or context situations we can ask about why different segments might uh, value that differently? And again, that goes to to value. Uh, what are the competitive alternatives are available? Right. Uh, and and when I think about competitive alternatives, going back to a jobs to be done lens. I don't really care if there's uh, another little startup app uh, out there. It's like, what is that solo traveler in your in you know a specific customer segment? What would they? What are they using today? If your situation mm -hmm. didn't exist, uh, I can tell you from my personal travel, it's probably a Google Sheet uh, because because <laughs> uh, you could make a Google Sheet do anything, right? As as most uh, founders who are building SaaS software understand, uh, workflow software, you know, pretty much you could do with an intern and a, a spreadsheet. Obviously, uh, your workflow software solves a lot of problems, but you know, those are things I want to think of in terms of federal alternatives, because I really want to understand that, that differentiated value. I'll stop there. Uh, I'm not sure where, where else you want to go with it. No, that's fascinating. I, I just wanted a, a, a quick take. Like one of the things that I find fascinating interviewing guests and uh, like particularly yourself is understanding the thought process that goes behind uh, walking into these rooms. I think there's something something valuable to, to share with the audience. And I hope everybody enjoys the thought experiment. I like the idea of coming up with fantastic apps that I don't have to fund or develop or have any real world constrictions on. So uh, <laughs> Phil and I will go back to the drawing board on this app. Um Dan, uh, the last question we asked this to all of our guests, and I'm going to conflate this again a little bit because I want to ask about what's your favorite country that you traveled to. Um, but like from starting a consultancy, working with like top brands, traveling the world, uh, just feeding your curiosity, like reading through some of the things that you've uh, worked on in terms of, you know, self, self-taught, uh, you know, one question we ask all our guests is how do, how do you balance it all? How do you balance life and happiness and work what works for you and i'm going to slip it in there uh what was your favorite country and what do you miss the most about about traveling solo <laughs> oh yeah there's a compound question if i ever heard one so i'll just <laughs> yeah. I'll, add, I'll answer the other one first so i would say probably west coast of norway was absolutely amazing if you haven't done it go do it uh it's really expensive cool. but it's, it's pretty cool um and then uh, i would say that i am a seeker i have not found the truth on the first part of the set of questions I think what helps me maintain my sanity is a regular meditation practice. Mm -hmm. So that is uh, what I, I try to commit to uh, and it has helped me keep my, my head on straight. Uh, and so I've, I've done several meditation retreats and those have been uh, very useful for me. Oh, fantastic nice. advice. When do you meditate during the day? Like what's the, the best time in your routine that you found to slide it in there? Uh, I meditate usually first thing in the morning and then I try to get a session in in the afternoon, but that doesn't always happen. Dan, this has been super awesome, man. Thanks, uh, thanks for your time. Anything else you want to plug for the listeners before we go? 
uh yeah if folks want to connect with me i'm happy to do so on linkedin it's probably the easiest way to do so uh just reach out to me at dan balkowski on linkedin and just let me know you heard me on the podcast so i separated from the rest of the linkedin's fan awesome thank you again thank you guys 